Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm recording this from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people. First Nations people have been custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonisation is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in, taking land, sea, children and lives, with many of these effects still disproportionately impacting Aboriginal women. I want to acknowledge that despite that, 60,000 years of wisdom continues and so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligations to take a daily personal responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. Today on International Women's Day, I'm speaking with Dr. Angeli De Silva, a postdoctoral fellow at the Melbourne Law School node of the ARC Centre for Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society. Angeli is an expert in administrative, anti-discrimination and free speech and media law and theory with a focus on harmful speech and its regulation. Her PhD examined vilifying speech directed at and about women, and in particular the role that law could play in regulating, deterring, and mitigating those harmful forms of speech. Today's conversation is wide-ranging, examining how gendered hate speech affects women, communities, and democracy, but also revealing its functions the silencing and subordination of women. Angelie's illustration of this latter point, the function of the gendered hate speech serves, was articulated better than I've heard elsewhere, and it will certainly inform work that I'm doing uh, in mental health-related vilification. So thanks, Angelie. But more central to, the, to today, the episode is a reminder of the work ahead of us, both legislative and cultural, to reorder society on a more equal basis. And today I want to give a shout out to Van and Ben who run the podcast The Week on Wednesday, a podcast that runs on, well yeah, obviously Wednesday, but also Sunday. It's a podcast that examines Australian political news and current affairs, but from the perspective of Australian workers. The Wednesday episode has excellent takes in a conversation between Van and Ben, while in the Sunday episode, Ben gives a strong take on the week's events, particularly as they uh, impact Australian workers. Often uh, some news pieces that are left off mainstream outlets. So I strongly recommend that you check it out and subscribe. I've popped their details in the show notes. Um, thanks so much for, for coming here today, Anjali. Um, could you tell me a bit about yourself and how you came to work in um, in this area? Sure. Um, so I was a practising lawyer for about five years straight out of law school. I was doing um, mainly commercial law, which has its benefits, um, but it became apparent to me, I think, you know, fairly soon into it that it wasn't kind of my driving passion. Um, and I realised that if I was going to be pulling 12 to 18 hour days, I probably wanted it to be uh, in something that I was really motivated to do and work that I found meaningful and that kind of led me down the um, research and policy path. Um, 
I did my thesis on hate speech directed at women, particularly in online context, but also more generally. Um, and people say to me a lot these days, oh, it was a very um, strategic topic choice because it's kind of being spoken about a fair bit at the moment tonight. And it definitely wasn't strategic. It was fortuitous, if anything, I think. Um, I just got really angry about a particular topic that was relevant to me and my community, as you said, um, and, and decided to go from there. So I was in London working at the time that this kind of came into my radar. There was a lot being said in mainstream media around um, harassment in particular that women were facing online. So not all hate speech manifest as harassment obviously some of it is much more seemingly benign but functions in the same way um but there is a lot of cyber harassment that goes on and it, it's been reported in the media for the last 10 years or so and that's kind of what got me thinking about the topic um which is to say introduced me to a way of thinking about the topic from a policy perspective now most women will grow up hearing things and thinking oh that doesn't sit well with me or um, that shouldn't be said or that's offensive. So actually in reality, many of us are thinking about these issues um, in different contexts throughout our lives and that was the same for me as well. It just kind of gave me an academic and legal focus. Um, I did my thesis at the University of Melbourne, Melbourne Law School um, from 2016 onwards. Um, took about four years to submit with bouts of teaching um, and then... Here I am now as a postdoc, um, also at Melbourne Law School, which is um, a really fantastic place to settle straight after the thesis again. Um, and the, while the thesis was kind of quite theoretically focused, because this is a topic that hasn't been written on a lot in a scholarly context um, and hasn't been looked at a lot at all in a policy context, um, the thesis ended up being a conceptualisation of how this speech manifests, what its harms are and what it does in the world in a practical, functional perspective. Um, the postdoc is more focused on thinking about um, solutions or perhaps more accurately responses, particularly from platforms in an online context to see whether some of these harms can be mitigated. Yeah, wow. I mean... Um... Fortuitous, um, obviously, for you to do this work, but I'm sure fortuitous to a lot of people who are probably going to benefit from the policy work that you do in this space. And I'm keen to to unpack a bit at a later point in the conversation about you know how how this speech functions and what it functions to do. Um, I guess that one of the central questions we ask in this podcast, and I think you've alluded to or, or signaled some of this, is why does regulation um, matter to you? And that's not obvious to, to a lot of people and that's kind of the purpose of this podcast. So mm -hmm. why does it matter to you um, and why does it matter to your community? Um, thank you. So I think, you know, there are kind of several layers to why regulation matters with something like this. The first is, of course, that victims often feel completely helpless when there are no... Um, policy or legal or regulatory remedies uh, to this kind of conduct. Victims face real harms. So on a personal level, there are a range of causal harms that victims face and continue to face um, 
when when confronted with hate speech. So those can range from feelings of humiliation or feelings of being threatened um, to physiological reactions like an increased heartbeat, um, everything our bodies normally do when we feel fear um, or, or when we feel degradation. And then there are kind of really... Um, significant constitutive harms as well that go beyond individual victims. So things like uh, constitutive harms of subordination and silencing where women are constantly reenacted into this hierarchy of subordination um, because of the way that language constructs the world. Um, if, if someone is, you know, spouting hate speech at me on the basis that I'm perceived to be of female sex, for example, that doesn't just impact on me in the moment. It keeps reinforcing these narratives that women on the basis of sex or gender are inferior to men in a range of contexts or are for use by men in a range of contexts. And, and so it goes. The world is constructed around us and that has real-world impacts not just on particular victims but on women as a group as well. Um, one of the things that is only starting to be talked about um, as a result of those broader constitutive harms is that it really has significant harms on our democratic processes and institutions as well. So if I'm online and I'm being harassed because of who I am, um, it means that I'm less likely to continue to be online and certainly less likely to continue to speak my mind in an honest, authentic fashion. And if it's happening to enough women, um, it, it constitutes a grave threat to the kinds of democratic processes that we um, commonly acknowledge to have a legitimating function over our, our governments and other governance mechanisms. Um, and eventually it gets to the point where I don't need to experience that harassment myself. All I need to know is that this other woman who spoke up or said something, experienced it, it was really bad. This is what happens to women who open their mouths. I don't, I'm, not, I'm going to self-silence um, in order to avoid that kind of behaviour in the first place. So there are a range of causes of constitutive harms that are really significant and are worthy of regulatory remedy um, to ensure that people aren't suffering but also that those harms are uh, deterred or mitigated some kind of sense. There's another layer to it that I think is really significant as well and it's kind of what got me thinking about this topic in more detail. So it's not just that there are very few regulatory or legal impediments to hate speaking against women at the moment but that, that the lack of those impediments or protections occurs in an environment in which several other categories of hate speech are regulated and are prohibited in this country and elsewhere. So, for example, racial and religious vilification is prohibited in a range of jurisdictions in Australia. Racial vilification in particular is prohibited um, in every state and territory except the Northern Territory. We have laws against homophobic speech, transphobic speech, um, in some jurisdictions, disability-related hate speech, even, not even because it's still significant, but it affects a much smaller part of the population. We even recognise HIV-AIDS status as a protected 
category when it comes to anti-vilification laws in Australia. Across the world, racial and religious vilification laws are really common. Um, similarly, sexuality and gender identity-based anti-hate speech laws are relatively common, um, whereas women as a group on the basis of sex or gender are only really protected in a couple of jurisdictions. Um, so South Africa and Canada being the main ones at the moment, which is, you know, two out of nearly 200-something, and it's 51% or so of the population. So it's fairly blatant, the gap. And what it does when we don't have regulatory responses um, protecting women from hate speech in that context is reinforce that this kind of speech is somehow less serious than, say, racist speech or homophobic speech, that it's less harmful or, alternatively, that the people suffering those harms are less worthy of institutional protection than other people suffering other kinds of hate, suffering from other kinds of hate speech. Um, so multiple layers to why regulation is important. I think a really significant two are um, addressing victims' concerns and redressing those harms, and then this idea that the gap in the law, so to speak, constitutes a harm in and of itself and further reinforces this idea that women are subordinate, unworthy, whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, what a compelling um, account of, um, of yeah, why we need regulatory safeguards around eliminating hate speech and vilification uh, against women. And um, as you were saying that, that you know, that uh, there is a lack of protections. Um, I didn't realise it was so scant globally too. I knew it was within Australia. Um, something came up in my mind and in that about why uh, such laws are not in place um, I, a lot, I imagine, are because of what you're talking about. There's probably, um, you know, a symbolic, a, a social order, you know, a social or patriarchal order that um, that you sort of speak to there. I also reflect on something that John Howard said. Um, I don't know when it was, but it must have been two th when he was prime minister that we are in a post-feminism kind of uh, world and we don't need that kind mm -hmm. of uh, we don't need feminism an anymore so there's possibly been you could say unintentionally but I might say intentionally I'm keen on your views an attempt to erase the need for those kinds of protections um, uh, and erase any social inequalities I don't know what your thoughts are on that yeah, I think so. There's a tendency, I think you're right. I think there's a tendency to kind of sanitize the way um, inequity that's inconvenient to acknowledge and to address. And I think women in particular over the last few years, or maybe as you say, from you know, from Howard onwards, what's that like a couple of decades, um, have really been suffering as a result of that. I think um you know, as, as as someone who's heavily pregnant <laughs> at the moment and trying to negotiate um, all of that and, and the significance of all of that, I can tell you that we do still need feminism um, and, and I know that you agree with me on that, but there's a real tendency, I think, in recent years to... And, and it's a lot that goes hand-in-hand with capitalism as well, right, because there's a real tendency to kind of say, oh, we have 
an International Women's Day event once a year and that's all we need. And as long as women make up 50% of people on these boards or whatever it might be, that's all that feminism need, needs and that's, that's all that women need. Um, and I think it's a great mistake, as you say, and also um, a really convenient kind of neoliberally focused misrepresentation of, of where the, the actual grievances are and where the actual solutions might lie. Um, I think you alluded to something on the deliberate front that I think and the social order front that I think is really significant too. So part of my work um, was I didn't end up writing about it in any detail because the thesis took a different direction, but part of what's really interesting about this gap in the law is why it's there. So why do we have protections for people of colour and um, people who are members of the LGBTQIA plus community, but not, again, 51% of the population. And um, I think there's a separate thesis to be done on that, to be honest, because there are some really telltale signs that suggests that it's one of those classic examples of, of law ignoring gendered harms um, and policy ignoring gendered harms. So, for example, um, up until recently, so we know that there is um, a bill being proposed by Fiona Patton in the Victorian Parliament. Um, the Queensland government has done a little bit of work looking into this recently as well and also recommended that um, sex and gender be added as relevant protected characteristics. But prior to that, all we had was a New South Wales Law Reform Commission report from the 1990s. And one of the things that, um, so there were two paragraphs essentially, um, or maybe three, um, that talked about why they had decided to exclude women from existing anti-mullification law protections. And part of the reasoning was that pornography represented too big a problem in this space to tackle and that, um, you know, what might be violent pornography for one person that constituted hate speech was contested um, and legitimate expressions of sexuality for another person. Now, while those arguments make sense in the abstract and there is always going to be differences in interpretation, the argument as a whole doesn't make sense. One, it implies that the problem is so big that we're just going to bury our heads in the sand. Two, it implies that there are no nuances or difficulties in interpretation when it comes to other forms of hate speech, mm. which is completely untrue. Um, three, it overlooks the fact that a lot of mainstream pornography is already racialised, is already already constitutes hate speech against people of colour, disabled people, um, trans women, etc. So, so the obfuscation goes on and, as you say, it serves a particular social order to kind of just keep dismissing or ignoring this problem um, and it really paints a picture about what's important and who is important mm. when um, we have our legal and law reform and policy institutions saying um, we can't protect women from hate speech because it will threaten everyone else's access to pornography. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it, it really begs the question why this gap exists. I obviously have some strong views about why it might exist. Why um, did you say that out loud? I mean... 
God, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and, and, you know, those are just my kind of preliminary thoughts on it. I, I haven't looked into it in any detail, um, as I've said, and wouldn't want to be making any broad ranging claims, but just instinctively as a feminist legal scholar, I do think that there are really um, significant but also trite recurring boring reasons why women have been ignored from this part of the law yeah um uh, you know let, let's move on i guess to, to to what's the phenomena we're discussing here and and you've you've spoken a bit about that there's hate speech um uh you know and vilification protections against other communities but what does that look like i mean you know hate speech targeted towards women and um you know, forecasting what I guess you would know are some of the um, other ways that it's framed, uh, possibly to limit um, law reform and regulatory form. How does that differentiate from what we might term free speech? Right, sure. Um, so there are lots of different ways in which hate speech against women manifests. So I might start with a really brief introduction to that and then move on to the free speech versus hate speech question, which is not a small question, Simon. <laughs> Sorry, my apologies. Yeah. Um, but so when I, as part of my work, I've identified kind of um, a few commonly occurring categories of hate speech against women. So violent, invective and threats. So you'll stop standard um, cyber harassment stuff, death threats, rape threats, which are really common, um, directed, commonly directed at women. Um, or just kind of uh, speaking of women as violable, um, as able to be violated, um, that kind of language. There's sexualised invective, which you can, you know, probably get a sense of what that's all about. Um, very prolific online as well, although, um, you know, um, not uncommon in face-to-face interactions either. Um, non-consensual pornography, which is a bit of a controversial one because not everyone agrees that that should be counted as hate speech. But to the extent that, um, you know, revenge porn or upskirting images or that kind of communicative conduct is about reducing women to objects, then it does act in exactly the same way as other categories of hate speech against women would. And then there's other objectifying speech and other contentious speech. So that captures, you know, hypersexualized advertising, the kinds of pornography that communicate a message that women enjoy degradation or violence against them. Um, that kind of thing is captured by other um, objectifying speech and other contentious speech as well. And then there are also your back to the kitchen comments or you throw like a girl comments. Etc. Now, you might hear something like you throw like a girl and think, gosh, that can't be hate speech, that's a bit much. And I agree that from a legal perspective, I think there needs to be a line drawn around what we mean when we say hate speech that is best addressed by legal regulation. So legal penalties, whether they be criminal or civil, um, is, is probably a narrower category of speech that functions in a particular way. But hate speech, broadly speaking, is any kind of speech, according to my conceptualisation, that functions to subordinate and silence people 
on the basis of their relevant descriptive characteristics. So for women, um, saying to anyone, you throw like a girl, implies that women are inferior in some way or girls are inferior in some way. And that functions to subordinate and silence women. Now, that might not be serious enough for us to want to legally regulate. Um, however, it functions in the same way. We can all probably agree that threats and violent, effective, sexualized, effective, and non-consensual pornography are on the more serious end, should be legally regulated. We'll have disagreements about whether that should be criminal or civil regulation, but that's you know, that's kind of how you conduct that line drawing exercise. So you can say, start by saying there's a particular kind of speech that functions in, the, in these ways, subordinating and silencing speech, and then have the next discussion around how that speech should be or should not be regulated legally or otherwise. Yeah. Um, in terms of what's hate speech and free speech, I guess... Um, the free speech question can be looked at broadly from two angles. So you can think about free speech as a matter of coverage or as a matter of protection. So you can say that a liberal free speech principle covers all of this that is speech, but not this that doesn't count as speech. And you can say hate speech is harassment, it's abuse, um, it's, it's all sorts of things, but if, you know, it's subordinating and silencing speech, therefore we don't capture it as speech for the purposes of the free speech principle and it doesn't have those same protections that a free speech principle would accord to other kinds of speech. Now, I don't have a clear preference on this, but I feel like that's making the decision or drawing the line too early. A lot of hate. A lot of what constitutes hate speech is also inherently political speech, right? So if you're saying that women belong in the kitchen or if you're saying that, um, you know, whatever it might be, that women... Um, shouldn't be lead, shouldn't be political leaders or something. I'm just yes, thinking of Tony Abbott, you know. should be subordinate to their male partners, whatever it might be. Um, that that actually is kind of called political speech as, as far as I can see because it says something about um, your view of the world and how it ought to function. However, at the protection stage of the free speech principle, we can really coherently say, I think, and some people will disagree with me about this, but I think there's a really coherent, fairly easy argument to be made that speech that harms others by subordinating and silencing them on the basis of not their opinions or um, whatever else, but on the basis of descriptive characteristics that they have that are fairly immutable um, and go to the core of who they are rather than what they are saying, um, should not be protected at the protection stage of the free speech principle. So we can say this speech is speech, it would normally be covered by a free speech principle, but to the extent that it harms people in these particular ways, it shouldn't be afforded the protection of the free speech principle in mm. the same way that other kinds of speech are. So that's kind of how I tend to look at it. I think um, certainly apart from those, you know, main serious categories, so apart from, say, threats and violence, sexualized invective and non-consensual pornography, all the speech that falls in the more grey areas 
I think should be covered by a free speech principle. But I think we should have a nuanced enough view of free speech in liberal democracies that we can still say it's covered speech, but it's also very harmful speech. And to the extent that it's harmful speech, we're not going to afford it the protections that other kinds of political speech or other speech might be afforded. Yeah, what an interesting way to, um, to frame that. I So if I've understood it correctly, you have all, so the really violent and vective kind of um, uh, conduct or communicative or speech acts, you just, we put those to one side outside of the principle of free speech. But then I had in my own mind that you had a, um, a bar, like a, a loading bar, and you had 100% in that bar, and all 100% of political speech is, is, falls under the principles of free speech, but maybe once you get to 70%, that other 30% of harmful speech might not get the protection because it's, it is so harmful. Is that Maybe that's a very strange way of thinking about it, but that's how I was visualising it in my head. No, I think so. I think that's not a bad way to visualise it, and I think... You know, I, I haven't exactly made up my mind about where the line drawing exercise should occur. I think um, that that kind of is the really difficult question, actually, once you've thought about the harms of this speech, et cetera, um, to, to figure out where that threshold is. But I think I think it would be disingenuous intellectually and unhelpful to say that all hate speech should fall outside a free speech principle altogether. I think what's more helpful to say is, well, there's some really serious hate speech that we could probably say shouldn't be covered by a free speech principle at all. Mm. And there's the vast majority of hate speech, which is more grey, where we go, well, actually, it probably should be covered by a free speech free speech principle, but that doesn't mean we protect it at all times in all contexts. Yes. So we should be able to look at free speech issues with enough nuance to, to think and to say, well, this is covered speech, but in this context we need to balance it out with all these other interests, including equality interests, and we're not going to afford it protection in this instance. And yeah. um, that's a very non-American way of thinking about free speech, I should say. So um, American lawyers and scholars may be horrified to hear, of, um, hear the issue being described this way because it's a much more kind of categorical, um, dare I say, rigid approach under First Amendment jurisprudence. But generally speaking, um, in Australia and in other jurisdictions, Western liberal democracies like in Europe, um, there's a more proportionality-based view of where this line should be drawn, and that's mm. kind of roughly what I was trying to describe. Yeah, and, and um, a lot of people, uh, we, we probably can't, I've got so many other good questions to, to ask you, but, um, yeah, I, I was listening to an interview the other day about the downfalls of, of that kind of categorical approach in the US and that, um, that it becomes a question of just recognising one, it's which right you recognise rather than a balancing and a proportional approach like you, you talk about. But um, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about, um, so we've highlighted that, um, I guess, a framework for thinking about, you know, what, what is hate speech and what is um, free speech. and um, But then you, you spoke about that harm principle and where the legal protections come into place. 
um, or may justifiably come into place. So what what protections do we have in Australia then, um, uh, if any? Um, so for women specifically? Sorry, um, my apologies. Yes, yes, for women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, basically none. So we have no legal protections for women in terms of um, hate speech as hate speech. Now we have laws prohibiting sexual harassment and it might come as a surprise to many people that we also have legal prohibitions against what is called obscenity. Um, so a very kind of um, moralistic take on what's acceptable or desirable speech and what isn't. Um, but what those existing laws don't do is capture hate speech as hate speech. Um, so they don't acknowledge the group harms. Um, they don't acknowledge all of the constitutive harms that I was talking about before, so the subordination and silencing harms that are constitutive rather than just causal. Um, and in the case of obscenity law, for example, and even sexual harassment law, there are some active um, harms, I think, that could potentially be done by those laws themselves. So obscenity um, tries to draw a bright line between what is acceptable and desirable speech and what isn't. And, of course, from a moralistic perspective, our views on that are changing all of the time. Um, and we have to remember as well that even still in 2022, those distinctions are being drawn largely by men who, you can, who largely control the legal profession. And do we really want... Um, or is it really ideal to have male lawyers and judges deciding what's morally acceptable in terms of speech about women and what's not? Um, and then sexual harassment, for example, takes into account or, or incorporates standards of evidence that relate to the reasonable person and how the reasonable person may have thought about a particular thing and reacted to a particular thing and of course that's really problematic in its own way as well because we often mean white male straight um, <laughs> not that there's anything there are lots of good men who are white male and straight but um it's a particular world view and I can almost guarantee that um you know I'm going to have very different ideas about what's sexually appropriate in the workplace for example than would um a 70 year old judge um, who hasn't had any of the same life experiences as me. So those are problematic in their own ways. They offer some ancillary protection along with um, laws against, say, harassment. Um, there are some laws against cyber harassment, but, but they don't regulate hate speech as hate speech and they don't protect women from hate speech as hate speech and they only ever offer really individualised solutions. Yeah. Yeah, if there was a, a map, you know, with, of all the different jurisdictions and you coloured in the, the ones where there was protection, it'd be a blank canvas here in Australia. The, um, yeah, it's, it's horrific, the lack of protection. And, um, yeah, I just, I do reflect on, on um, I was looking at threads recently of um, abuse given to Senator Lydia Thorpe and I see a real intersection of racism and misogyny in, in, in the responses to her. Um, so I guess um, you, you, you've, you've alluded to the next question is about who are the leaders and who are the laggards in mm -hmm. Australia and, and, uh, and globally, but um, I don't think there's any leaders by the sounds of it in Australia. Um, are there any globally um, that we can look to? 
Look, I think Canada and South Africa have um, some decent legislative protections in place. Um, Canada hasn't done that well on the interpretation front when it comes to sex and gender-based laws, uh, mainly because there isn't much case law available and where it is been available, where it has been available, particular provisions have been quite narrowly construed in unhelpful ways. Um, there have been there has been at least one case in South Africa that I know is quite useful. So that case, um, uh, the name fails me at the moment, but it was basically around whether comments to so a, a woman had accused a very high-profile public figure of of rape, essentially, and in response he had said, oh, but she stayed for breakfast the next morning and um, I paid for her taxi home. Um, women who are raped don't stick around till the morning after. Um, and in what I thought was a really good decision, they had brought in a women's organisation as um, an amicus curate, um, effectively, uh, to give evidence on this, and the judge accepted the evidence of the organisation that that kind of rape myth actually functions to um, subordinate women in patriarchal societies and, and that it violates South Africa's um, anti-hate speech laws, which I thought was a really good outcome because it's quite a nuanced view of what constitutes hate speech and what doesn't as well. You know, sometimes there's a tendency to think that unless you're saying women are inferior to men, none of the ancillary stuff counts. Um, but the fact of men propagating rape myths about women um, where women's voices are silenced in favour of a dominant patriarchal narrative about what sexual assault is and isn't and how victims should react and shouldn't react um, absolutely is subordinating and silencing speech. Yeah. Range of levels. Um, and I think is rightly captured by hate speech laws against women, um, sorry, um, laws on hate speech against women. And, and I think that judgment did a good job of that. But apart from kind of those very um, irregular examples, there's no real leader on this issue. Um, in Australia, I think it's been good to have MPs like Fiona Patton um, at least interested in this issue and proposing to have our existing laws extended to sex and gender. Um, as I said before, there were similar recommendations made in Queensland recently. So I think some work is being done on the policy front, but certainly not enough. And I think where the work is done is being done, unfortunately, there's a tendency to kind of want to co-opt existing laws and extend the categories to include sex and gender rather than thinking about whether the existing laws actually work in the context of sex and gender-based hate speech and, and whether they should look entirely different altogether. Now, having said that, I think it's still a step in the right direction, absolutely, to include these categories as part of existing laws, but I think there needs to be more work done on what women actually want out of these legal protections um, how gendered and sex-based speech functions differently from other categories of hate speech um, and how we can best respond to the particular harms of that kind of hate speech. Yeah, uh, that's a, um, 
a fascinating point. I hadn't really considered that. Yeah, that that just simply extending the um, the current protections to um, to people on the basis of gender and sex um, w- could be inadequate, or that you'd need a whole different legal framework potentially. Um, and but but as you say that any when you're trying to intervene and regulate anything, you often want to. Um, have a really clear conceptualization of the kind of regulatory problem in front of you. And you want to scaffold a whole series of interventions. They often talk about the a pyramid of sanctions and whatnot. Um, and that could look quite different based on the social problem that you're trying to resolve. And so I, I just guess that that speaks to um, uh, potentially the, a, a unique kind of regulatory framework needed to, to deal with that phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think those are really astute observations and I think they apply partly to to every kind of hate speech. I don't think that we've reached the perfect balance in terms of tackling any kind of hate speech. Um, I don't think that for many of our most pressing social problems, as you say, that a purely legal response is sufficient or appropriate. Um, And and the same goes for sex and gender-based hate speech or vilification as well. So, um, you know, you, you are, there's some norm shifting that law can and does do, but it doesn't do the bulk of the work on that front. Um, and so there needs to be a range of educational and counter-speech approaches. I refer to it as a multifaceted counter-speech approach. So law can do some of that counter-speaking, I think, especially as it's so authoritative. Um, and it can obviously do some of the other work around deterrence and compensation etc um, but we need for more broad-based attitudinal change to see any real difference here um, mm. and I think law can only be responsible for a portion of that attitudinal change and the rest needs to come through educational and other counter-speech measures um, and, and there's just in my view not enough um, scholarly work being done necessarily or enough uh, policy appetite to make those changes happen. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of other really brilliant women in Australia working on this um, as well, but if it's only a handful of us, change is going to be quite slow and we need representatives in particular to take notice and really you know, um, want to make that shift as well. But then we also need um, law reform commissions and other institutions like that to take notice as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, as you were articulating that, it sort of sounded to me like it's, um, you know, counter-speech, when you were talking about counter-speech, I reflected that it almost sounds like there's a broad effort around social reordering, you know, um, to, to redress that currently unjust kind of social order and that speech is one thing that kind of props up that 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 unjust order Mm. um are there changes you'd like to see right now so obviously um there's some systemic kind of um problems there with a lack of research into this um Mm. we don't have sophisticated kind of regulatory frameworks um Mm. in the short term are there things that you'd like to see yeah absolutely i think um I think in as many jurisdictions as possible, if we can get sex and gender added um, to existing anti-vilification 
prohibitions, that would be a really good step in the right direction. And I'm an academic, so I'm allowed to say that while also saying that existing laws are imperfect and um, could do with some shifting as well. But I think overall including those categories would be a, a really good step. Um, and I would just like to see more broad-based policy interest and support for some of these changes as well. Um, but things like uh, the Victorian, the proposed Victorian bill passing or work, more work being done in Queensland and then other jurisdictions following would be really excellent. Um, I'd love to see some interest and change in the area at an international and regional level as well. Um, and then the other big one really going forward um, that I'm kind of working on but don't have any answers to at the moment um, is, is this idea that a platformed response will become increasingly relevant um, as part of the digital speech economy because a lot of what is occurring, it's the same stuff. So Jessica Magari, for example, makes the point in some of her writing that it's, it's the same thing being said to women over and over again, almost as if it's the same guy doing the speaking. But what the digital speech economy does is that it, um, it extends the harms in space and time. So you can now Google the awful things that have been said to someone 18 years ago. Um, but it also compounds some of the harms by accommodating them in ways that they wouldn't be accommodated in, in kind of physical interactions. So um, we have more group polarisation and networking that occurs online that means that people are often reinforcing their own views and their own very radicalised perspectives. Um, there's a lot that happens as a part of the online disinhibition effect, which means that we're treating people differently online than we do offline and we're perceiving them differently and for women and minorities that often works in, a, in even stronger dehumanising capacity. Um, my famous Bannum writes about how women become um, basically just, you know, blocks of digitised information rather than a real, real person who's reacting in real time to what you're saying to them and how you're treating them. Um, and that means that digital online interventions are increasingly significant. We really need to think about um, whether our existing laws are workable in those contexts or whether newer interventions are required. And I think for the most part, newer interventions are required um, and, and private companies which represent the platforms are not doing enough um, at the moment. And there's a lot of what you were talking about before, kind of that, sanitising and pretending everything's okay because you've got in place these policies and procedures that kind of sound great on the surface but aren't being enforced properly or consistently, etc. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I do reflect in, in terms of that sanitisation that, uh, that, that I'm uncomfortable with us talking about things in terms of online safety. I think we should be talking about things in terms of racism, um, gender-based hate speech. There's just a uh, uh, something about talking about safety that depoliticizes it, which kind of mm -hmm. I think hides the the functional element of that speech. But mm -hmm. but I um, I might need to <laughs> move on, uh, noting that we're um, we're drawing to a close. And the the last question we ask all our, our wonderful guests are: uh, What do you want the listeners to do after they they hear you today? 
Um, what what action do you want them to take? Look, I think this is a really um, great question and I'm glad it's included in your podcast. And for those who don't have the background, Simon um, sent me the questions very helpfully to have a look over at the start. And the, in next to this question, it says, not general things like educate yourself, but more specific things. And I think that's really fantastic. So um, I know we only have a minute or so left. So just quickly, I think one of the main things that people in Victoria can do is lobby their representatives to have this bill passed. Um, all the recommendations suggest that it should be coming out of um, consultation. Um, so I would, well, not all of them, but um, there's a clear bias towards having it passed. Um, so I would really recommend that you lobby your representatives to do that similarly if you're in Queensland I think just talking about these things to your family and friends um, and you know making sure that a broad range of people understand is really helpful um, don't buy products from companies that advertise using hypersexualized imagery of women that you find offensive or harmful you know, listen to your instincts on this stuff and don't feel pressured into engaging with it. Um, similarly, you know, um, think about your consumption of products like pornography or other things and if it's something that doesn't sit right with you, don't feel like you need to be swept along because we're just constantly bombarded with these images and messages about women. Um, and finally, vote according to your values. So if this is something that's important to you, um, vote for the candidates and representatives that you think have any chance in hell of doing something about it and who care about it. Um, and that's not to plug a particular political party or anything like that, but just to say, you know, be meaningful around how you cast your vote because that really is the most significant way in which policy change can happen. Angeli, thank you so much. Um, it's been a, a wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.